In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. To achieve productive conversations on culture and society that are truly genuine, you have to speak openly and free of judgment. That is the purpose of our show. And at times, you need to be put in a moment with no advanced preparation. Just speak freely. On today's podcast, we open the pages of my notebook to discuss edge thoughts. All right. So you guys remember when we did our you know, habits that can actually create a fulfilling life. Mm-hmm. I remember. And do you remember when you uh, chuckled a little bit at my edge thoughts? I always chuckle at your, uh, the insights into your mind. I know. But uh, I, I thought it would be interesting to kind of go back on that because I really do think that um, that particular habit is, uh, it can be very fulfilling, can be very good for people to do. And so I just wanted to start off and explain to you and hopefully sell you on this idea of edge thoughts. Yeah, please tell me about it because... Um I made some assumptions. I could be wrong. Most of the time I am. So <laughs> I want to hear those assumptions, but let me start by saying I've got a lot of thoughts in my head. It's an unquiet mind, right? And one of the things that I realized- Careful. You're opening yourself up to a diagnosis, so. Well, um, that's okay. I've already been diagnosed, <laughs> so I'm okay with that. Um, I have an unquiet mind. And you know, oftentimes when I wake up, there's tons of things. And I had uh, come across this book called The Artist's, um, the Artist's Way and um, Julia Cameron. And in that, I wrote my very first edge thought because I just thought it was something that was really, really cool. And then I just started to do this every morning. Um, here's the fir- very first edge thought ever written down. I want to see what you guys think well, about this. What is an edge thought? So an edge thought is when I go in, um, I like to read a lot. But one of the things that I don't have in terms of my my strength of intelligence is I can't, my memory, I don't remember every possible detail, like a name. I'm bad with names, right? I can't, um, I don't have a photographic memory. Uh, I can't remember quotes. Um, so unless I repeat them over and over and over again, like an average student would. And when I had all of these thoughts and I'm reading and I want to share things, and then I was excited to say them the next day, I couldn't always remember specifics. So I wanted to start writing things down, almost like journaling. But I didn't like the idea of journaling, you know, paragraph after paragraph after paragraph. So I thought, well, if I can keep it very short, concise, and I can, you know, rewrite these things. And what I would do is like, do you remember the, the um, I think it was the company BASF, where they would make everything better? That's how I kind of envisioned this. I would take somebody's words, right? And I would write it down and I would then try to develop my own thought process through it. And what I found was that as I did that on a daily basis, it really was comforting to me. It helped me and it helped helped me get my thoughts out to people. Well, what's the ultimate goal? What's the purpose of doing it? So the purpose of doing it is really just to continue to be educated, almost like continuing education to make sure that you're on top of everything that's going on in the world. So you take things like nonfiction works that you are 
borrowing from other people that are experts, right? That, that have influence and you listen to what they are saying and listen to what they are reading. The problem is, is I don't want to just listen to them and their interpretation. I wanted to be able to interpret as well. So in some ways, this is an exercise in creative thinking, problem solving even. I remember when I was in college, we were teaching problem solving. Like problem solving is this idea of that um, we are kind of limited in what we see quickly or automatically as a way of solving a problem. And it's almost like you have to break out of the box of how things were like laid out to you and taught to you in order to begin to think more creatively. So there's that that famous exercise where you have to think about all the different ways you can use a brick, you know, and mm-hmm. everyone starts with using a brick, you know, to build a house or to build things or, you know, a, a retaining wall. And so you, you begin to think about only the ways that a brick can be used. And then once this exercise continues to play on, people are thinking about all these creative and different ways to, to use a brick. So I'm thinking like when we, this is a risk today for this podcast. Sure. When we talk about, edge thoughts, I'm going to think about it as a way is how can we expand critical thinking? How can we become more creative? And how can we actually get into like debates on different subjects and thoughts in a productive way? Right? Because that's what we're losing in society, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Like we don't have the same opportunity to get in debates. We're seeing cancel culture. We're seeing um, the impact of big tech on, on censorship. It's almost like there's got to be an echo chamber and everyone's got to be split into like different sides and you have to agree with your side or there's something wrong with you. You know, you're, you're misinformation or you're a conspiracy theorist. So what a great opportunity just to talk about ideas, to debate ideas and to think a little bit differently than maybe what we're typically like conditioned to do. So that book, um, The Artist Way, did they call it edge thoughts or this is no, Kelly's edge this thoughts? No, this was, okay. I don't, I, I, the word edge is, I always just kind of looked like at. fringe thoughts? All right, no, this really, this starts from a story okay. um, when I was very little. So I don't remember any of it, but I was told that when I was, when we were two, we traveled out to Colorado and out in Colorado, there's a mountain called Pikes Peak. Mm-hmm. And as retold to me is that my, you know, we went up there and I'm, I'm really afraid of heights. Um, but when we went up, we drove all the way up, and I guess there's a scenic viewpoint. And apparently at that point in time, and again, I don't remember, but I was told that I, I loved it. You know, I, I, it was like this amazing thing, and I had no fear. And I wonder now why I'm so afraid of, you know, heights. And I just always thought about the edge. It was like this edge drop-off. And so, you know, my mind went to that story because I love any story with my family. One of my first memories, you know, was, I guess, from Colorado, uh, very young, even though it was only two, I remember fireworks and they said that, you know, there were fireworks. So I have this kind of memory, although I don't remember it, mm. but I keep going back to that. And I think about the edge mm-hmm. and then I just like, I like the idea of the edge of for people. And if you look at it, it's very, it's overly used. In fact, there's the edge restaurant right down the street from here. <laughs> right. But, but I like the idea of that. So that, you know, going over the edge, looking at the edge and then of course not even going near the edge in people's lives can make a difference in in what they do so edge thoughts would be a way for me to take risks with my thinking sometimes going over the edge or sometimes backing away from it depending upon you know what what i've read right okay years ago over a decade now decades ago we worked together in a school system and you were the first teacher that i came across who thought you should eliminate grading 
or you know you should use a different system in order to kind of assess your your students that was on the edge you know at that time right, right? and like so this has always been you you've always challenged status quo and asked why and when other people don't come up with answers that really make a whole lot of sense then pushing it to the edge is asking those questions and trying to make improvements because it's it's so interesting when you push people on on the questions on why do you do something the way you do it mm -hmm. how often it comes back to well it's just because of the way we've always done it have you ever heard that story um there was originally like a monkey experiment as to it kind of supports that because this is the way it's always been done um i'm going to tell it in in a way that more people can understand it there was a, like a brewery in, in london and a new employee started working there and when they would make their beer and it would be in barrels on Mondays, they would deliver it. Imagine like a 30 mile radius outside the, uh, the brewery. They would deliver to the farthest location. And then the next day they'd work closer, closer, closer. And then Friday would be the local deliveries. And the guy asked the question, you know, uh, why do we deliver this way? There's a better way to do it. And the answer was, well, we've always done it that way. And then he goes, well, there's, there's gotta be a, a reason why. And, uh, and the woman was like, well, why don't you go ask old man, you know, Lucas, he's been here forever. So they went and talked to old man Lucas and he said, oh, well, the reason we deliver that way is because the horses were drawing the carriage and uh, we realized as the week goes on, they would get tired. So on Mondays, we'd go to the farthest location and Fridays they were tired. So we would stay local and they stopped using horse drawn carriages like 20 years ago, but they just kept on doing what they had always been doing, even though it wasn't the best way of doing things. Yeah. Um this also comes from a story early on before Roger had worked um, for the, the school that I'd been at. Uh, I brought in Play-Doh uh, Play because <laughs> I just wanted to, these were these were seventh, eighth graders. And I just wanted to see how well they could think for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, because I had just gotten out of grad, you know, the grad school stuff. And I'd just gotten out of being told how to teach. And what I, what I found was when I was listening to my professors, I was failing miserably. Like, in other words, whatever they were teaching me at the college level was not at all what I should be doing with these kids. So I brought in some Play-Doh and I just put a blob on everybody's table. Mm -hmm. And as per usual, they already knew, like when they came in, they were like, what the hell is this guy going to do today? And that was like kind of the, it was fun for them though. They weren't like, they were a little bit nervous, but it was like, what's he going to do next? I had so many different things I want to do. Anyway, I put this blob on their desk and all I wrote on the, um, Oh, it was like a whiteboard at that time. I said, I wrote down, um, make it work. Mm. Right. And I said, that's your assignment. That's your assignment. 40 minutes. Make it work. Make it work. And, <laughs> and they're like looking at me like, what the hell's, you know, what, what am I supposed to do? Of course, every hands are going up. Mm -hmm. And I said, this is, this is, I put a point value to it. The grade and, and hands are going up and I'm like, listen, just make it work. That's how <laughs> every time they ask me a question, I go, and I would, I would emphasize different words like, hey, look at me, make it work. Yep. Right? Mr. Weatherhold took the day off. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what probably most people would feel. But I'm like, I really had this in my head. I wanted to see how many people would start. And then I wanted to see once a person started taking action, how many people would follow that action. So they're finally, after probably 10, 15 minutes, um, a very, um, very bright girl in the class started to take it and just like molding it, right? And shaping it into some sort of a, uh, I guess it was a character from the book that we were reading. 
right? Mm -hmm. Another person started messing around with it. Other people were just kind of like staring at me still, like in shock and awe, like, what am I supposed to do? And he has a time limit on it. So there was like pressure put on it. Long story short, you know, other than the girl, you know, doing it, which I I gave her full credit, I was going to give them credit on whatever they did, because I just wanted them to take something and, you know, take the action, go for it, no matter what it was. I don't care if you were creating, I don't care if you took it and ripped it into pieces. I didn't care if you, you know, flattened it out, you know, and wrote on it. But they had such a hard time without any guidance, without any direction, which I know, I know, like, I'm very well aware we need guidance and direction in our lives. But for education, there's a there's kind of like this line that's drawn. In order for a person to be educated, they can't just repeat every single thing that the teacher is saying. They have to, at some point, adapt to thinking for themselves, to be able to take positive risks and so on. I did those types of, ex, I guess, experiments or things a lot in the hopes that I could help to get them to understand that, hey, listen, whatever we're doing, just take the action and take the risk. And I thought that that was edgy. But I got, listen, I got, I got obliterated by my, by my you know, fellow teachers like, well, you, you don't really work, do you? Uh, you're just taking the day off and stuff like that. I'm like, you know, you have no idea. And you're just like, you're doing it. So I want to today on this podcast... I have a lot of edge thoughts that I'm going to bring up and I'm hoping that you two will just kind of banter them, maybe debate them. I can do that. And I'm telling you right now, most of them stem from psychology and education because that's a lot of what I read. But a lot of them, I look back on it now. These are from probably 10, 15, 10 years ago, maybe, right? When I started this whole process. So I'm, I'm excited to see what you guys do with okay. this. Go ahead. It, well, it's an interesting exercise because... I just saw this documentary called Class Dismissed, and it was on homeschooling. And I used to have this opinion on homeschooling that um, you know the kids that are who enter into homeschooling are going to be you know have social regression uh, because so much about what school is is like being able to interact with people who might be different than you. And there's a number of things that you just have to learn in order to be successful in society. And I got finished watching this documentary and questioning all of that um, from the social interaction to what needs to be learned. And if you think about where we are in the evolution of society, a lot of the old rules aren't going to work anymore. You know, it used to be like you work really hard, you get good grades, you go to college, you graduate from college and it provides you all these opportunities. But in the new economy, like those rules don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, you can get good grades, you can go to college and you're saddled with tons of debt with a skill ba- with a skill set that's not really going to be that effective um, marketable in the new economy unless you you know are, are in some kind of professional career you know, usually medicine law something like that like that the general kind of education at the at the next level is how applicable how applicable is it going to to be and there's all these different ways to try to uh, support your life now that have nothing to do with that that education. You had to question whether that formal education is even going to be necessary for a lot of the next generations. Yeah, I agree with that. So let let's start with um, that. The very first edge thought I ever wrote down was just a quote from the book, right? Mm-hmm. And I didn't really change it because I thought at that point in time. But it, it was it was once we get those muddy, maddening, confusing thoughts on the page we face our day with clearer eyes, right? So that's directly from that first one I ever wrote, okay? After that, I started to look at the quotes or the books that I was reading, and then 
I would, or I would listen to presentations, sometimes going to conferences and presenting anything that was stated, or sometimes I was watching something. Sometimes it was out. anything that was stated. I would try to then reinterpret in my own words. So here's the first one I'd like you to, to kind of, uh, and this is your edge thought. You didn't steal it from right. anybody. Well, I mean, I'm always looking at when you say steal it, it comes directly from anything. Because then it wouldn't be on the edge. Or listening to, right? It's got to be your own. But you have to bring these Yeah, but an original thought doesn't exist anymore. So it it stems from something. You you do your best to try to make, when you say an original, you Mm -hmm. do your best to try to think, okay, so I heard something. I'm now going to change it to this. Okay. All right. A man named Fred from Philly in the 1800s changed the course of education, and I want to punch him in the face. Let me give you a little backstory on that one. Guy named Frederick Taylor <laughs> established the principles of scientific management. We're losing half our audience right now. <laughs> it is only, and what he said with this principles of scientific management, it is only through enforced standardization of methods, enforced adoption of the best implements and working conditions, and enforced cooperation that faster work can be ensured. He was one of the, one of the people single-handedly for standardized testing. All right, so we're talking about what, what are the benefits of standardized testing? This was testing? in the 1800s? Yes. All right, yeah. so industrialization, you know, progress, what was going on in the world at that time. Yeah. All right, what's the benefits of standardized testing? Uh, rankings and seeing where you are in, on that scale. Data. Data, yeah. So am I, am I as strong as the person next to me? Or stronger, yeah. Yeah, where, where do I? You put people into categories of uh, potential. Mm-hmm. And does that even work? I remember I took a standardized test in like fourth grade and I was in the 99th percentile and I just started coasting from there on out. Yeah. <laughs> Look at you now. <laughs> Look at me now. <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting. I was reading a story. God, I can't remember where it came from. And it was talking about um, the valedictorian effect and how those who are valedictorians in high school are, are not going to achieve or perform at the level of uh, students who aren't and it was based on this idea is like think about what it takes to be a valedictorian just think about it what does it take to be a valedictorian well you're gonna you're going to be a very hard worker in terms of you know the system and how to do the system grades grades are going to be strong right well you need to to sometimes you need to sacrifice other things in order to study 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 so you can make sure that you stay in that top one per that, that number one position but think about it. Like, what's typical is that you have a strong area. Like really bright people, you might be a great math student. Mm-hmm. And it's highly unlikely that if you're a really outstanding math student, that you're also like great at writing and English literature. So there's something about the valedictorian who has to perform at such a high level at every single class. And so they get really, really good at giving the teacher exactly what the teacher wants. Mm-hmm. So it's like following those rules and having high success across the board. Except in Mr. Weatherhold's class, because they couldn't take Plato and make it into a perpetual motion machine. Those are well, the those, Victorians probably had a difficult time in my class. Yeah. They would be the ones in the corner crying yeah. because it's outside the boxes. So, but what does it take to be really innovative and successful in the real world? Um, that's, that's a, a very difficult question to answer because you really need to be flexible. Um, and you, you need to learn how to work with others. Well, 
See, you're talking from the obedience standpoint, right? (laughs) Like successful is following this step and then working your way up the ladder to become this. I didn't say that at all. It's it's that Those are not my words. So I'm going to think about things. (laughs) Well, I I said you have to work with other people because to think you can do something independently on your own. uh, Challenge the status quo, right? Um, Be innovative. Be entrepreneurial. Like these are the, are the things to be, you have to be able to challenge what is there. Does the valedictorian effect, does the person who is the valedictorian develop necessarily those skills or are they just really, really smart and good at following the rules? I used to bust Sean for, for being stuck in middle management hell. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> Uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was also, you know, I got promoted. I was one of the youngest managers in in a big corporation. So, yeah. And that would feel good to someone like you, right? (laughs) Because listen, I, (laughs) someone like me, feel good like someone like me. But, but you know, you are, you do play well with others, right? No, I don't. (laughs) Not well. You, I think you have this false idea of who I am. You really don't know me at all. Well, if you so think about Honda, yeah, right. As an organization, Let's keep the brands out of here. <laughs> but as an as an organization, right? What do they value um, as far as employees? Do do they promote the ones who challenge authority, who are most innovative, and are going to propel their organization into the next century? No, I don't believe they do. How do they promote? Um, it's tough to say. Um, I would say they, based on your ability to execute a plan and, and, and get the best out of your people. And longevity. Yeah. yeah. Right? We, we, had, we talked about this as like the, the loyal employees who've been there the longest, regardless of their skill set, will sometimes move up the corporate, corporate ladder. So it kind of... It, it reinforces this idea of loyalty and obedience to the to the organization, and that that's Japanese culture in a lot of ways, right? The Japanese culture definitely influenced the the American uh, business, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, and yep. so my point is, like, is when we think about the valedictorian effect or the standardized testing, the ones who are really going to change the world are the ones who aren't going to want to be able to work for anybody else. Right, and they might have a certain type of personality in school system that doesn't allow them to be successful. Those people might be identified with a condition, ADHD, oppositional defiance. Like it's this personality that I want to question why. I'm not going to accept that you just told me. What about this? That's like that thinking, and do we we don't support that? Like the standardized testing is: Do you know this compared to somebody else? Right. Like where do you rank? Here's your class rank. We're we're trying to we're trying to determine who is going to best fit into this system and is going to follow the rules as we set it out. And in many instances, the system itself, like I'm not saying Honda, please don't like brand names, but remember. What, what success looks like maybe now, maybe 30 for 30 years, suddenly is not successful anymore. A company goes down. A company goes down. And it's happened over and over again. And yet people will say, well, this is how we've always done things. That, you know, we, re- we reward obedience. We reward hard work. And I actually don't have uh, you know, a problem with either one of those skill sets. But when you are not allowing innovation or an individual that's questioning right, to rise amongst the ranks, because they're not being obedient or because they're not following company policy, 
but you you're setting yourself up for for you know in 10 15 20 30 years it goes away this is one of the reasons why i'm no longer there uh because i was questioning the longevity of the existence of that business there was a lot of these other companies popping up out of the blue that were not following the rules of the previous companies that have that came out and they were taking a different approach to things they were lean they were getting things done much faster because mm. there was not layers of approval that had to happen. And I was, I had concerns. Now let's face it for order in a society. Don't we need this? Yeah. So there's that other part of this, right? So you can't just go, well, there, uh, there can't be any rules. You're saying there's no rules. There's, you know, just think how you want to think and, and everything. Well, I'm not, I think that you have to have some sense of order. I think there are rules at work. Of like you always you need look order. at drive, look at you know roadways and driving. Um, people know those rules, but here's the difference because people that that's been brought up to me. Like, okay, you know, I get your whole point. You want individuals to think for themselves, and you want to be the the cool teacher that breaks rules. And I'm like, that's not true. But I will say this: there are parts of the system that can work. Right? This is actually, the second edge that I'll bring up, we'll show that in a, in a bit. But when they bring it up, they go, what about highways? What about driving rules? That works well. We have green lights, red lights. We have things like that. And I said, yeah, but you know what? You're, those people that are driving also have the ability to take risks if they want to, sometimes bad risks. They have the ability to be individuals in their own car. They can listen to whatever they want to. There's a big difference between that. When you're sitting and looking at school, right, as a system, and you're just standardizing everything, you're not giving individuals I, the ability to think for see, themselves. I, I, I see it a little bit differently because I think there's going to be about a, per, there's going to be a percentage of, uh, of kids in a, in a system who are truly innovative, who think outside the box. There's going to be a percentage of people who are artists, who are creatives. You don't want to fail them. Mm -hmm. Those who are, who, you know, enjoy following the rules, like they feel safe and they feel comfortable and they're obedient. And that's going to be a large percentage of the population. They have to find a place in, in society as well. But that shouldn't be the purpose of education. The purpose of education should be a love of learning. Because, you know, you go, you go through, you follow the steps, you go through every step along the way. And then after that, you're like, I have to, I have to unlearn some things that were told to me or I'm going to stay stuck. And that's the, my problem in the, in, in the mental health system. Just think if you just followed the rules that were provided out there. And we're talking about how that is influenced by industry and the outcomes are worsening. But if you're, if you're not willing to question the outcomes, if you're not willing to stand out there and say, what is going wrong that so many people are worsening? Suicide rates are going up. More people are depressed. This is a healthcare system. You know, what if we were treating cancer and the, and the cancer rates were in, increasing such a degree? Or we have these innovative like heart medicines and treatments, and now we see more heart attacks. And, yeah, like, use your, uh, your red light, green light example. That's not necessarily true. You go to another country where they don't have intersections. Yeah, don't they have? They have rotaries and accidents go down and people learn how to drive through a rotary or an intersection and they, they do it safely. Yeah, they see what other right. people are doing and they just adjust their speeds and everything keeps flowing more efficiently. I think as a metaphor, that's always been brought to my attention that, you know, because I think people misinterpret me as well where they go, oh, you're just going to break every rule. I don't break every rule. I just question everything. Like mm -hmm. that's the biggest part about this, right? That's but, what edge thoughts are, is just questioning, yeah. you know, what you're reading. Well, other things are like, you know, we, we have these uh, restrictions and rules on, on drugs and we've had this drug war for, you know, 40, 50 years. It's just about like illegal narcotics. Yeah. And yeah. Like, yeah. It, and other cultures and societies don't have those same 
restrictions mm-hmm. uh, um, legally on, on drug use. And what do you see? You see that, um, you know, countries that have more restrictions create this black market. And it's almost like you desire th- human condition desires things more when it's controlled for you. So well, you have to prohibition is a perfect pro- example of that. Right. If I can't have it, I want to try it out. Right. Or if you, you know, if you're going to institute some controls over me, there's something natural about the human condition to want to be free. So we have to always look at kind of this data, the things that we believe to be true, but actually create harm. So if you put, if you, you know, you develop a drug war, what happens? Increased deaths and, uh, you know, increased use of, of drugs and crime and everything that's associated with it. I'm going to move on to, I'm, I'll stick with education quick, but here's the, here's another edge thought. You ready? Yes. All right. If you are not making mistakes on assignments, especially projects early on, then you are not innovating enough. You are just vomiting stupid ideas the teacher wanted you to provide. That's not itch. Move on to the next one. That's, <laughs> not that's that fail fast model. Yeah, that, that's, there's nothing edge about that. I think you're misinterpreting edge thoughts. Like these are my thoughts that I'm read and now I'm going to be, and I want, I want, that to me is the biggest problem with education. Fear of failure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're not, but isn't in a, that everything in life? Fear of failure. But if you're not making mistakes in initial projects, if you're not like, if you're somebody that was working for a company and you're not taking enough risks and making mistakes, you're not innovating. Mm-hmm. You're not questioning things, right? Yeah. You're just, you're just being told what to do. And you're just, you don't even have them. to apply that to business and, and education. It's you can apply mindset. that to your, your life, you know, That's get into mindset. relationships. You fail at relationships. You get better at them. Opportunities to learn. That's growth mindset. Right. I need, I need edgier from you, Kelly. <laughs> Give me edgier. Well, we'll move into... <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh, damn. <laughs> I don't, I, I, well, we'll move into psychology. So one of the things... Wait, I, let's go back to that one. Because when you were applying it to education, because of the, the, the rating system, it, it really puts limits on anybody wanting to fail. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Because it, there's grades. Well, sure. And, and that's really why you wanted to move away from, from a grading system because it, it prevented people from innovating for, because of fear of failure. So those same kids that I did with the Play-Doh were sitting there asking questions like, what do I do? What am I supposed to do? How do I do this? Versus, can I do this? Mm-hmm. You know, um, Would it be okay if I did this? I was looking for those types of things. They, the, the premise of them not wanting to make mistakes early on, Right. Well, if you're if you're if you're graded and you're ranked, then it creates a fear to make a mistake. Yeah, because you're in a you're in a challenge with and it's a, it's competitive like for the grade point averages. So, does class rank even matter? Like when in you, life, no. But for getting into these elite institutions, college-wise, no does it even matter? It matters to people who believe they know how to get people into college. Right. Guidance counselors think it matters. Um, I guess it just matters for them. And they say, if your class ranking is one to you're in the top third of your class, right. Or the top half, it's going to be better. But I don't know that it actually Aren't matters. universities now no longer using standardized tests as they're any, not they're, SATs they're, they're, they're are getting rid of them. Right. Well, do you know why? Because it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have predictive validity. So at, at my son's school, there's like a four year, four years in a row a wrestler has gone to, to Harvard and Harvard's, you know, widely considered one of the top academic institutions in, in the world. They don't have to take their ACTs or SATs for, for Harvard. 
Like it's not a requirement. Mm -hmm. So it has poor predictive validity. So what that means is how well you perform on that SAT does not predict how well you're going to do in college. So any test that that is supposed to provide some prediction of your your performance and it doesn't prove that to be true, why use it? And then the other questions are are the are cultural diversity and differences in in culture. So if it's a test that's developed by uh, you know, upper middle class white people. Mm-hmm. Does it is it able to determine somebody who might have been uh, born and raised in um, you know poor economic conditions? You know, immigrants. Does it predict whether those people are going to be so successful? There's a, there's a bias. There's a cultural yeah. bias in how words are even framed so or how you think. Let me re-ask the question then. What are the Indicate uh, what are the qualities of a high school education that can predict success in college, university, and and there on out. So, I'm gonna tr- I'm gonna. There are some we're we're contrarian, but there's some things that are right seem to be really important. Math, science, you know, in a in a world that is uh, requiring further technological advancement and use of engineering and technology. Those who have really strong foundations, because math and science have are their foundation. So the STEM, the science, the tech, was it T is the technology, mm-hmm. engineering, and math. Right? Yeah. yeah. Schools really need to need to emphasize that. And then you balance it with those who might be more like inclined for communication. I was just gonna say, I think that on that other end, we communication's essential in learning the ins and outs of rhetoric. Going back to that that what would somebody say old school critical thinking you need to learn how language is manipulated mm. learn the tricks right if somebody's saying sentences in repetition that's a trick right when you're listening to a speech know how to analyze it we are not teaching these kids enough about communication in that sense because we're so influenced by rhetoric and language and persuasion and you know what's what's interesting is when you come around people who might be ex- incredibly bright and they're problem solvers, and they're science-based, and they're and they're thinkers, but they can't sell their ideas. You know, they can't they can't communicate it because in a way because they see the flaws in their ideas. No, I think it's a it's about a limitation. So, like, if you are extremely gifted in one area, and we see this like on that autism spectrum, mm-hmm. you know, you may be extremely gifted in certain areas of like spatial reasoning and nonverbal problem solving, and you might have that skill if you. If that's not balanced with your ability to be able to articulate and communicate this, the complexity of this in a way for someone who is not as bright as you to be able to understand it, well, then it, those ideas might not progress. And, it's, and that's like the balance of diversity in people and why it's so important because the echo chamber that exists in people who think the same way and the people who communicate in a similar way limits progress. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say, Roger, you attacked Kelly for this last edge thought, but we've been having a conversation about it for four minutes because you let the conversation just go instead of squashing it down. So you are putting these limitations on You know what that is? That's growth mindset. (laughs) 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 Let's move on to, here's another one. Here's another one, okay? We are terrified of being us. We are afraid of blurting out something that we believe will be deemed inappropriate. That shows we are not proper, that we have our imperfections. Why is this not celebrated? I mean, we all watch and appreciate inappropriate behavior, imperfect people all the time on the news, shows, sports. 
So why don't we embrace our imperfections? Radically genuine. That's what I'm, we're trying to do in here is have a conversation that's open and free of judgment. But when you have imperfections, you're opening yourself up to outside judgment. So people put a mask on. All right. So hold on a second here. Let's think this one through. We're talking about that screening process. So everyone thinks things that they don't say. And what's the reason why we think we think things, but we won't say it? Well, one of them is we don't want to offend. You don't want to hurt somebody. And yeah. so, so that's one, because if you, if you offend and you hurt somebody, then you're not going to be part of the group. If you're not part of the group, you know, you're, you're not accepted, you're lonely, you don't have opportunities. So you are, we learn, and this is like adaptation and evolution, we learn how to be likable in order to be accepted. And it's only when you're accepted, then can you have new opportunities. So that screening in our own mind is actually a skill, right? It's something that is like necessary in order to, to evolve. But can it go, can the pendulum swing to the opposite side where you're so afraid to, to offend somebody? You're so afraid to say something that's outside of the, the group or the box because you're going to get rejected that we actually limit progress. Yeah, it's probably 90% of the, the population. I think of the Jordan Petersons of the world. You know, the guy who is going to speak what he truly believes, even though many people will be offended by it or turned off by it because he wants to have this conversation and get people to think about things from a certain way. So isn't that now an edge? He if, is. He's on the fringe. Yeah. Yeah. And when we're talking about what puts somebody, like give somebody an edge, right? An edge, edge in life. That if so many people are now confined by fear and they're restricted because if they say something that offends or is outside the group, those who are more willing to take that risk now have, have an edge. You almost have to step outside what is convention and typical in order to be able to push progress in some particular way. We're starting, I think we're starting to see the pendulum swing because we went from political correctness. We went to like um, concern, you know, cancel culture and things being taught in a certain way in both, you know, secondary education and in college environments. It's almost like the thought police, right? Like if you think things or you say things that are this way, well, then you're a racist, then you're offensive, then you're a bigot, then you're a conspiracy theorist. Well, things are starting to swing the other way because you start to begin to see the problems with that in society because then you're never evolving and you're not challenging the hierarchy and the status quo. And the pandemic taught us this, that your freedoms are going to get, are going to become restricted. So it's getting celebrated. So you have somebody like a, like podcast and Joe Rogan, and you mm. bring people who are outside the echo chamber. And now they're like, wow, this is, uh, this is actually really freeing to be able to like hear somebody's perspective that's outside the echo chamber. And I think that's exactly why I probably wrote it because of the fact that um, most people don't feel like they're themselves because a lot of the thoughts that they have, they, they do feel that they'll be misinterpreted or they're afraid that they'll get backlash. We don't even teach. And by the way, it's okay. Like for him to challenge that last edge thought, that's what you need to do. But you're right. You're right. If you just sit there and say, well, we're not going to do that. You have no idea where things can go. But that's right. the imperfections are that um, I'm, I'm okay with the challenge. I can defend my idea. I'm getting to that point and manifesting, so to speak. However, um, many people in our culture are not. 
And many people have really good ideas and they're afraid to speak out on them because of the imperfection. When I say imperfection, I'm not talking about physical imperfection. I'm talking about not allowing the idea to come out because somebody's going to attack them because it goes against whatever's happening. It's like the rules of brainstorming is there's no bad ideas. You just keep spitting out oh, yeah. ideas. They teach that in public school, the brainstorming thing, but it's not really brainstorming. It's, well, great, great job, guys, but you're still going to do what I tell you to do. You're not allowed to use the word but. I used to say, like, <laughs> sometimes I'd just say crazy things like way to use a brick. Well, I'm going to take this brick to knock knock the stupid out of you, you know, <laughs> and then see what a person in authority does. Yeah. Right. But, but <laughs> that's, that's the, that's the testing of your environment. In my industry, we talk about, um, therapy and obviously this, this fed radically genuine and, uh, you know, this, this podcast, I think one of my, my edges in for, for therapy is I think my clients really trust that I'm going to really be radically open and, and genuine and we get we get a lot of trainees and our early career therapists psychologists come in and they're doing that therapist speak where they're really good at summarizing content and they're really good at validating but there's a there's it's often like you say well what are you really thinking what are you feeling you know tell me what you're thinking tell me what you're feeling right mm -hmm. and they're they're afraid to do that Although they all value genuineness, they're still afraid to do it because if you really shared what you were really thinking or feeling, it could it could hurt somebody. Yeah. And then I would say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, what are you communicating? Are you afraid you couldn't repair? So like if I, I can I can say to Kelly, Oh, that's not an edge thought. Or I can make up something, you know, I usually do it with a smile on my face. Oh, I'll use this brick to knock the stupid out of you, you know, mm -hmm. but with a smile. But I also believe I can repair that by saying something like that. Um so you have to have the willingness to be able to repair relationships too if you say something or do something that's that's offensive and they have to know you and where it, where it's coming from. Yeah. Here's the next one. You know that idea that keeps coming back into your head, the one you keep putting to the side because you think it's stupid or too far-fetched, so you toss it. Well, maybe that's the idea you should work to complete. I had an idea in the early 2000s to develop a map of major cities that if you were unfamiliar with them, they would guide you to your location. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, how can I get this as a business and put it out there? And I was like, hotel rooms. All right, I'm going to incorporate it into hotel rooms so you can tell your TV in your hotel room, I want to go to the P.F. Chang's. And it would show you the directions moving out of the hotel and walk you how many blocks and you would visually see where you needed to go and turn. And I was like, boy, that's a great idea, but you'd have to build this huge map of the world. And then of course, Google Maps yeah. came out like five years later. And I was like, yeah. that's my idea. I got another one of the stories. <laughs> and maybe you remember this, Kelly. So myself, Kelly, um, another teacher at the school that we worked at and the, the principal at the time, we all scattered and, and went our own ways. and But we always we stay together and we, we try to meet like if not every month, every couple of months just to get some drinks and some food. And I'll never forget Mike, Mike, if you're listening, shout out to you. We, this is when apps started to get really big and we're sitting there at like PJs and we're having oh, a that's couple right, beers. That's right. And like, he goes, you know what? You know, I got a great app idea. 
It's like you can go get reservations at, at a restaurant. Like you just click on the app and anywhere you want to go, you can just get reservations. And I remember like saying, well, here's the reasons why that wouldn't work. <laughs> so Roger. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I first, we, we first said, that's a great idea, but how do you pick the table? And there was like a lot of, at the time, our minds couldn't even uh, consider the idea of open table yeah. or something like that. And so, but how many people have those ideas? Yeah. And it's not just about ideas. There's a lot of people who are idea people, but they don't they don't know they, how, how to, to get A to, a yeah. to B, right? Yeah. So you need all the tech. I don't know how to build an app. I might have an idea for app, but then you got to go find someone who knows how to build an app. And you need to have the funding. Of course. And all yeah, that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Ideas are easy. It's the execution that's hard. Yeah. But But why do so many people? I mean, there's ideas that I have that keep coming back. And then if I would bring them up to someone, say to both of you, and I get one negative response, and I wouldn't let you know that I was, you know, offended, but I'd be like, you know, I'd go home and be like, oh my God, I'm not going to, that's, he's right. Why do we do that? Why, why don't we just say, you know what, even if it fails, even if Sean doesn't like my idea, I'm going to go for it. And that goes back to the whole, edu- again, the whole educational system, not allowing individuals to take risks, to be innovative, and to re- reward innovative thoughts. Cla- um, class differences, middle class mentality. One of the one of the emails that I sent to Sean to get him over here to Pennsylvania is I talked about the middle class mindset and uh, how we're rewarded for obedience and staying within the box, and how I even looked into who we were growing up, how you can be punished for stepping outside the box or thinking independently. And I'm, that pandemic year for me was, we need, you know, life is short. You know, we don't know how long we're going to be on this earth. We got to move at, we have to move in a direction that serves our purpose. And I wanted to advance the conversations in, in mental health. And I needed him to be an innovator and to take, take, take some risks in order to kind of advance the conversation and advance this, this center. But the middle-class mindset is you play by the rules, you work hard and you advance and, uh, each generation is better than the next one, but that's not the case anymore. No longer can we just say in American society that you follow those rules, that, uh, your kids will have a better life than you. I think if we look now, um, our, my generation, our generation, mm-hmm. I think might be the first one that's not better off than our parents. Yeah. 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 I, um, I've realized most of the things that I've accomplished in life I've done because I want to prove Roger wrong. <laughs> like he'll say, I can't do something. And then I'm like, oh, that's it. I'm going to go do it now. Like I ran a marathon. Know why? Cause I was starting to train for one. And then Roger goes, you can't run a marathon. Are you that's, kidding me? That's, that's I never really said that. Did say that. I, ran, I remember I called you one day and I was like, I ran eight miles today. That's the farthest I've ever run at once. And you're like, you're going to run. A, you can't run a marathon. Eight miles. There's nothing. Know what else you can't do? <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't build this podcast up in the center you, in a way that makes a wide scale difference. Oh, you don't have, you don't have the skills to, to market this <laughs> skills. I have this. I see what you're doing right now. <laughs> Did I really tell you you couldn't run a marathon? Yeah, and that's that was that's what motivated me to um, fight through injuries. And but here's what I really think: I don't think you can run a second one. <laughs> I did run a second one. I mean, a third one. <laughs> I ran. A, I ran the second one. And I hit my goal. I missed my goal for the first one, so I ran a second one just so I can hit the goal. And you know, you need to get yourself in shape too. I do. 
I don't, I don't need you to tell me that. <laughs> oh, you, know, you can't get yourself in shape. <laughs> I just realized, I just realized this next thought he's going to attack again because, but this is, I'm going to say it. Anyone would care. If you spend your time focusing on the things that are wrong, mm-hmm. the negatives, and that's what you express to your friends, to the people, to your family, to your coworkers, you don't become a source of growth. You become a source of destruction. I, Kelly, that I, thought I, is so stop wrong. It, get out of here. I'm putting my hands up in the air right now because that validates me in this room. You know Mr. How much, positivity. You know how much crap I get because <laughs> I want to try and find the positive solutions towards the problems that are pointed out in this room and, and I get this dangerously naive title. Come on. I'm the one who's going to keep people motivated and they're going to see the potential that exists in the world because we are surrounded by some really good, great people. We just need to allow it to happen in our lives. You're also surrounded by corrupt governments and you're dangerously naive. See, for not that's the them. negativity. There you go. <laughs> see, two things can be true at the same time. <laughs> there is something called toxic positivity. I, I'm aware of that. Yeah. Explain. Well, toxic positivity is, um, you know, when someone's always has to put a positive on, on things, like even when it's really harmful. I actually right? have a toxic positivity podcast right now in my queue it may have been a freakonomics one i'm not sure uh, i'll go the name of the podcast itself or that just episode the, the that episode. one particular episode is toxic positive i'm unaware of this phenomenon like this so. might have to be a, a podcast for us but i you see this in popular culture where everyone's getting lavished with uh you know positive praise without even earning it well, that's yeah. different yeah. you you are amazing sean i've never met anyone like you earned it <laughs> <laughs> Kelly, you're the edgiest I've ever seen. You know, it's like this this lavishness of, of, of praise uh, without anyone really doing anything that's that's worthy of that. But there's to- there's there's toxic positivity. Is 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 you know everything's got to be great, and that's well, in, in my in my opinion that it, everything's got to be great because of what it feels like to not be right, to be challenged, to feel offended. To not feel good for a particular second, there's less tolerance for it. Positivity only works if it's genuine, right? If you're right. just spewing out bullshit, you know, toxic positivity mm, stuff, yeah. and just applying it to everything, it loses all its meaning and it doesn't have any influence on the people around you. But yeah, you actually truly need to believe it and point out the things that are great. Is there a to- um, toxic positivity in education? I don't. Know. It's been so long since I've been there. You'd have to tell me how it's kind of I'm just. Well, you know what? I'm gonna. I'll research a little bit more on the topic, and we'll get back on that one. But we we joke, Sean. But um, the truth the truth of the matter is, I I don't think that you're dangerously naive or or toxically positive. Um, but you need people who who believe in others, and can support their and support their growth. And there's there's truth around that. And you have to create a culture, uh, where people really want to perform and do well and have the opportunity to fall, make mm-hmm. mistakes, and then learn from it. There's no, you know, there's no debating Let's that at all. Use this center as an example as we transition into more of a, a training center for the next generation of clinicians. The idea of failing has to be part of our culture where we allow them to make those mistakes early on in their development so that they can do more good with the the rest of their their careers yeah if you're going to challenge a a physician you know around their ideas and and how they're treating a client that you're mutually sharing where you're going to be radically genuine you're going to say something in a session that provokes strong negative emotion they might get up and walk out 
Yeah. That happens. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're if you're fearing the response in both those situations, you never take that risk. You never take that risk. You might not ever really help somebody in the way they need to be helped. Mm-hmm. And you have to develop the skills to do it in a collaborative, caring, and effective way. You know, if you just do it to just hurt somebody, then there's no value to that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I teach communication classes, and years back I started to, um, obviously I, I always read, but I had to learn about mass media. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, obviously I think your expertise plays into this, but correct me if I'm wrong on this. One of the first things when I was researching to build the curriculum was that there were at the time five major companies that owned pretty much like 90, over 90% of what people heard and what they saw. So in other words, um, Disney was one of them. And so Disney then owned the rights to like ESPN, maybe now Fox. I can't remember all of them. And then that, and then those media companies also had other channels. They also had newspapers and so on. Okay. When I, when I read that years ago, that was the first time I'd ever learned that. And I thought that that was just unbelievable that I did not know that. And I was already in my, you know, thirties, you know, and I'm just like, why don't people know this? So one of the, a lot of the edge thoughts that I had was then researching for, you know, teaching media classes. And so, um, I wrote this one. Okay. We are a society that does not understand how to turn off the noise to hear the signal because of all of the different ways that media can be manipulated, Mm -hmm. almost like propaganda. We're going to use it for real. That's all noise. Noise is just generated. And before you know it, you have no idea what the act, what the actual event was, what the true story was. So for example, that, that I use that story about the five corporations or six, six corporations yeah. at the time. I never knew that because I never actually paid attention, even though that information was around all the time. I was just only listening to noise, right? I was only, so much information was being bombarded, never even bothered well, that that this was- seems so obvious, you know, it, it doesn't seem like it's on, it's on the edge of, of, of thinking, but I, I think you're right. It is an edge thought because I think, and again, pendulum swings, mm-hmm. you know, and what we've, what we've learned are, and I, I think they've screwed up because the, the messages have been too carefully, you know, crafted across uh, political lines. Right. So like, you know, that, you know, CNN and MSNBC serve this group and you know fox serves this group and so when the when the messages are so carefully crafted and constructed and they're all using the same language you're like hold on a second here you know what what is going on now you know it's propaganda and it's not news anymore right you know it just is propaganda are you think that people are still um you know still believe what they're what they're told i as, think it's as, i think it's become a little bit even worse because i believe that through social media, for example, that, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago when that active ability to like and swipe and follow other people on Twitter, I believe that gives them this kind of, they believe there's this autonomy of their thinking like, well, I'm on Twitter, (laughs) right? And so I know that I'm not brainwashed because I'm following blue check mark, blue check mark, and this person, and this person does this. And I'm just like, well, yeah, but who are they following? And what are they tweeting? Are they tweeting identical things? Are you looking at that? Well, no, but, and then when you look at those blue checkmark people, they're, they're tweeting the exact same thing. Like, so they're not, I think it's gotten worse. Filtered information. Filtered information. Ba- you know, based on yeah, noise. What yeah. Just noise. Okay. So what are we being distracted from? 
that idea of the, the six holding companies, that I wasn't aware of that. I think that has evolved over the last probably 15 years. As the digital economy grew and a lot of marketing and advertising transitioned from the traditional magazine, newspaper, and television towards the more digital platforms, everything became about impressions and how those impressions can be delivered. And as a holding company, if you were Disney and you saw the amount of revenue that was coming in from an advertising perspective, they thought about the other channels that they could expand their reach, and that's where sports came into play. So when they started acquiring things like ESPN, then all of a sudden they were in, con- they were in control of how they can uh, send a message out to an audience uh, from a revenue standpoint. I don't think it was so much about controlling the message. That, to me, was never really in my mind, especially from, from the business side. I was never thinking about that. I never thought about the holding companies. I thought about the channel that you know outdoor network or ESPN or whatever was just one particular channel who is their audience what are their impressions what's the cost to run an ad on there that's all that was ever you know in, in my mind mm-hmm. got me thinking about sports as a distraction so we're all we're all huge sports fans here and uh i you know i, I love sports cuz we grew up in it um you know, some people love art because of the experience, right? You, you see something that's, that's, that's beautiful and you get a feeling around it. I get that feeling when I watch high-level competition. It almost has this art feel to me. And then competition can like bring out the best in, in people. But I've started to have a little bit less of that feeling with sports over the last couple of years. It's almost uh, like it's somehow it's lost its meaning to me in the way that it used to like hold something of high value there's almost an emptiness around it because i i watched this sport you watch this sport and used to get excited about your your team winning or even now with your kids watching it because it had this strong this strong like sense of like long-term purpose like you do this in this sport you can achieve this almost similar like to, to grades like you're you know you're in comparison you're being ranked maybe you have opportunities down the line and now I start thinking about it as a distraction from some of the things that are really going on in the world. Mm-hmm. And I get more of an empty feeling from it. It's, it's like not the same for me. Maybe that's just maturity. But it's just it doesn't have the same uh, high that I would get. No, I feel the same way. I've kind of lost it. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think it comes from maturity and exposure to other things in life that help kind of take your attentions away and put them elsewhere. Yeah. All right. Here's the next one. Isn't there a difference with how we view struggle? Shouldn't we be changing the language around it? For example, a breakdown should be a breakthrough. A failure should be a starting point. I mean, we have evolved the language for other realms, such as stereotypes. Why aren't we evolving the language for this? We don't we don't talk about this kind of we don't talk about spirituality. We don't talk about religion on this podcast and we may have to. So first of all, Kelly, some of these things have been written for centuries. You say, why don't we ever talk about it? Um, it's because we, we don't talk about philosophy. We don't talk about the Bible or the Quran. You know, we're not talking about um, you know, the ancient writings of, of Rome and the Stoics. There's so much in there that, that talks about these very kind of uh, human nature aspects of pain and suffering and growth. 
but it's been historically, it has been tied to something that's a, a much bigger than us, right? It's the, it's, it's the experience of transcending after death, whatever you believe in, right? In, in some way to become more godlike, to become closer to your, to your God. And these things are these things are written, but they're in a secular society. They're taken out of the the lexicon um, because formal religion over you know, religion over the, the past half century has been demonized in a lot of ways. Because with religion also comes terrorism. With religion throughout human history has come war. There's been fanatical aspects of, of, of religion, but the core tenets of religion and spirituality are are about love. And the more that that's taken out of society, you wonder, have we lost our moral standing, number one? And, uh, you know, our, our moral standing is, I do good. You know, I, I love my neighbor as I love myself versus I follow this rule because a government bureaucrat or a dictator told me to do it. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's a little bit different. But it also comes to how do we view emotions in our society, pain, struggle, all those things. If you're taught that that these things are your opportunities to get closer to your purpose or to get closer to your God, uh, everyone, you know, words that we've used in, in our faith and our religion growing up where everyone has a kind of a cross to bear, do you do things then for the betterment of your purpose or... And, and does that serve you better over the, the lifespan when there's some moral code? Or are you doing something just for the benefit of you? And I think from a psychological standpoint, if everything is just about you, if you do things only to serve your own pleasure, that has the, um, the opposite effect. You do things that serve you, you become empty. And you do things to serve others, you become full. And those are spiritual and those are moral. And that has existed for centuries of writings, but we don't talk about it to the point where here we are in 2022. Well, why don't we talk about struggle? Why don't we talk? Well, suffering. Yeah. You know, suffering is the core tenet of, of major religions and spirituality. But that's on the, that's on the edge of, that's, that's an edge thought. How is that on the edge? I know, you know? it like shouldn't that, be. That, it shouldn't that's, be. That, that's really not on the edge. But the, the use of words. Correct, specifically words. Yeah. yeah, words are how something is labeled opens it up to, a an image or a, a representation of what those mer- words mean. Yeah. So when you say the word break down, you know, I imagine somebody falling down on their knees and their elbows in a in a moment of just despair. Uh and how someone could in- interpret those those moments based on somebody else saying those. But the other side of that coin is when we start playing with words in a way that they can be interpreted as positive, then all these things that are happening right now that confuse the the English language and get people spun up is potentially at risk. You need to have some bad words to really appreciate the good words, right? I mean, you need to break down in order to rise up. So how how do you how do you find that balance in there? It's a duality in a dialectical nature. Like in order to truly love, you have to you have to experience loss. And in order to feel joy, you have to be able to feel pain. It's the it's the value of that. To say there's good in the world, you have to accept that there's evil. evil. Exactly. Right. Or how would you ever recognize it? Yeah. You know, how would you know it? Let's go back to the education conversation. Um, if everybody 
was an independent thinker that was coming up with radical ideas and, and going out and changing the status quo, then that becomes the status quo. Right. So <laughs> you need a percentage of people that, that are always going to be questioning and you need a group in the middle that's executing. And that's, that's how that, things progress. That's the order in society. It is. Right. It's the natural kind of like everything falling into place. But then somebody else always rises up again. It has, it has to happen that way. Which is amazing how you think about it, right? That there's people who can construct buildings and there's people who can engineer bridges and roads. And then there's someone who can be an artist or a philosopher. There's someone who can be a brain surgeon. It, to me, it's always strange. Not strange. And this is more, I think, more of a spiritual way. It's like that society can evolve with great order with everyone having these unique different talents that that put a society together. That blows my mind when people I begin to find think about their it. purpose. You know, what is your purpose? Your purpose is, is what you're doing right now to have these conversations with your clients, to allow them to see their potential and to get stronger. So the concept of suicide, right? Wanting to end your life to want to end your life. You'd have to be in so much pain and almost there would have to be a belief that the pain is never ending. Mm-hmm. Right? Because if you can sustain pain for a period of time, knowing that it's temporary, then you can have some form of hope. And that's why I have real questions and concern with how mental health clinicians are being trained to work with somebody who's in that level of despair. It's oddly become this weird um, protection of liability, like a fear again, that if somebody ends their life under your watch... That you know you're going to be you're going to blame you're going to be blamed for it, and it stops people from taking any particular risks. And so, well, what are your options? I can I can I can threaten. It's basically a threat to hospitalize somebody because you can you can involuntarily commit somebody through a through a, a court process, right. right? And imagine being suicidal, right? You're already in great pain. You don't really you know a lot of people don't believe that um, they're cared for, they're hurt and damaged by others. And then, so this emotional distance comes and then like your response to that is to put somebody into a hospital. And this is where science comes into play, that that worsens outcomes, right? Going into that hospital, we say, we're, we're taught, well, that keeps them safe during that vulnerable time. Well, what if it increases the likelihood they'll commit suicide? Or die by suicide now, right? That's the language. Everything language is changing too. Commit suicide, die by suicide. Okay, die by suicide. What does it matter if you committed it or you died it, right? But you're 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 going to lose your life if that increases the likelihood that you would lose your life. Why would we make that recommendation? Because you're told, mm-hmm. right? And you're scared not to. Where I would rather teach people two two basic things. Here's what we know. That that relationship, whether it's you or your family or anyone in your community, is what matters in that moment and means. So you, if pain is temporary, right? If you have the means, drugs available right there to overdose or a weapon, when you're in that pain, you can act on it. Yep. That's science-based. And can I inspire hope? Mm-hmm. Because I care about you. And this time is temporary and you'll get through this human connection and understanding the vulnerability of that moment. Instead, they become these checklists that people go through to try to assess risk. 
and then they hospitalize them. It's hard to understand what's going through someone's mind at a time when they're at their worst in a struggle. And I think about that one, I haven't watched it. There's a documentary, it might've been called like Jumper. It was the people who went to the um, Golden Gate Bridge to commit suicide. Oh yeah. And some of them survived. And they interviewed them and asked them the question, you know, what was going through your mind and what were you thinking about the moment you jumped? And those who survived, the only thing they were thinking about was, I wish I was back up on that bridge in the moments that they were falling because they realized that they had made a horrible mistake. And so many people don't have that opportunity. They make a very rash decision and it ends quickly. But those who survive, there's lessons to be learned there. Scary. All right, final edge thought for today. Um, and this, this goes down. So I enjoy every morning doing this. I, I like reading things. I like challenging things. And I do have an unquiet mind. And sometimes, as my wife can attest, it becomes very annoying because I will blurt out things. And sometimes they make absolute sense. Sometimes they just are they're awful, right? But one of the reasons I do it is because I enjoy it. I enjoy it a lot. And so this was a thought that I had a while back. I don't think it's, it may not be edgy enough for you, but I, I believe it exists. And it's if true. this is our last one, it's got to be really, well, really edgy. I don't know if it is. <laughs> I, I don't know if it is, but I think it is. Um, what I got to thinking was about doing what I love, but life is about how much time you spend doing what you hate. Ooh. Life is about spending how much time? Life is about how, how much time you spend doing what you hate. I don't know what that means. Well, people wake what up every day. What did it mean day, to you? Every, every Friday. What did it mean to you so, when you wrote it? So every every Friday, for example, you always hear like, where I work anyway. Teachers are really excited that it's Friday, right? Mm-hmm. And you go, okay, why are you excited? You're going out, going out for beers, you're going happy hour, getting some wings. Uh, <laughs> you know what are you doing? And I don't know. As I got older and then had children, I realized that a lot of what we do, we complain about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that that, again, that may not be edgy enough for folks out there, but it's true. Wait. We, we spend a lot of our, our time. Who's we? Well, me, um, other individuals. I think this is, this is, this is the education system because I know where you're, you're going with that. I have some, I have well, some then stories go. Go ahead. to say. So one of the things that really um, was depressing for me about a couple places that I, that I worked is you like, you'd walk in on a, on a Monday, you know, and people would be like this living for the weekends kind of thing. Like, Oh my God, it's Monday. Or you'd get to Wednesday. Somebody's got a case case of the Mondays (laughs) or it'd be like Wednesday. Well, it's hump day, you know, or you're like, how, how are you doing? Thank God it's Friday. And I would be like, this is miserable. Like, (laughs) What th- there's only two days out of the week, you know that that you you live for, and what makes your Saturday or Sunday so great, you know, like if you're if 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 your job isn't serving some greater purpose that you can find joy in, then what the heck are you doing? I mean, I wonder if that's part of the middle class mentality. It could be, and I I knew that right away when I was younger. I used to think, God, there's no way that I am going to work a job where it's work to me, because I. I don't know the worst jobs that you ever had, but I had a summer job. And Sean, you did this job too. We worked at a chemical plant. Oh, yeah. Where, I mean, in 90 degree heat, you'd have to put up this full gear mm-hmm. and like those masks, those gas masks, yep. and dump chemicals into drums. Now I know where both of you lost your brain cells. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, I used to, you used to play games with yourself to see like how much time went by. 
and you'd be like, that had to be 45 minutes, right? Yeah. It's like you're li- you, you were like living that, that, that shift to the next break you could take. And a lot of the other blue-collar workers in there would do the same thing. And I, I used to think to myself, this is my personal hell. I could not, I could not in any way do a job that I hate like this and my life have, you know, some purpose or meaning to it and for me to experience joy. That got me through a lot of difficult times in my life, like going, going to grad school with three kids under the age of five. You know, when I used to like think that I was tired or that was hard, all I had to do was think about dumping chemicals in, into drums. So then when I was working in a school, you know, at that time, that, that, was, a, that was so much fun. First of all, it's like a seven to three, yeah. you know, what's seven to three and you're hanging out with kids and teachers and, but I would see them like just be worn down and complaining about such minute bullshit. Yeah. And I used to be like, where's the perspective? I couldn't handle it. I couldn't wait to get out of there. I had that same experience and you use the word perspective totally, you know, I don't know if you, you definitely remember, but my freshman academic performance was less than stellar. And <laughs> and you are our, on academic probation. <laughs> and and our, our father got us that summer job um, at the chemical plant. And, and that was to teach a lesson. I remember him sitting down and looking at me and he, and he said, do you want this to become your life? Then step up start doing the work, putting in the effort. And my grades turned around what a, a great lot, lesson, a lot after that. The chemical plant. <laughs> I, I saw my, my life could potentially become a, a nine to five, clocking in, clocking out. And um, I wasn't going to allow that to happen. And as I went into my professional career and started working, I had that same perspective. I knew what work was. And I was like, I'm getting paid to do this. I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this kind of work. And working in advertising is fun. I was always working on a new project, going out. We were shooting commercials. We were traveling. I was going to beautiful places outside, and I was getting paid for it. So I never mm-hmm. saw it as work. It motivated me. I think even the students, not just the teachers, uh, work. You know, they come in in the beginning of the year, and there's a lot of smiles, excitement. Um, you know, many many students who had failed in the past have a new kind of this, like I said, growth mindset where they're going to do this. But then three weeks go by. And you start to see them walk in now. They're not as smiling anymore. And, and you know, as the year goes on, it just kind of, they, they mm-hmm. go, they struggle. So I, I think I wrote it because the other reason is I've, I've heard recently people talking about things like social media, the time spent on playing video games, the time spent on this. And they go, oh, you know, I hate doing this. And I'm like, then why are you doing it? Right? And I'm just saying, I think I brought it up, we spend a lot of our time doing the things that we hate. And we don't focus enough on doing the things that we love. I think that's you know, and I what know we're experiencing over the last 18 months yeah. has, has proven that there are people that are coming to that conclusion <laughs> and they're leaving the work that they were miserable and they're pursuing things that they're more passionate about. Yeah, That's the good that can come out of this last two-year period of people being stuck in their homes is they were motivated for change. So if you can find, um, you know, as I go through all of these edge thoughts through the course of time, and I, I think about them a lot and I go back to them, I can reread them, I start to gain you know perspective. And that's how I started to, to um, change my teaching style. Uh, and I always think about it this way now with teaching is that to get individuals to not focus so much on what they hate, 
and focus so much on what they love, I think it comes down to, in, in education anyway, three, three things, value, passion, and invention. And so if we can, as teachers, um, get students to find value in what they're doing versus you know just looking at a grade, don't worry about the grade, find value. Once an individual finds value, they start to become passionate about what they're doing. If you're, if you're finding what you're doing valuable, you are automatically going to become passionate about it. And once you are passionate about something, I think that's when new ideas explode in your mind and you become this invent, inventor of ideas. And I think all three of those combined lead to a much more fulfilling life. Uh, you're happier about what you're doing. That's not just for students, though. I mean, I, that you could take that you know, for everyone in your work, um, your family, what it is you're doing. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.